Well, good morning again, everybody. And let me just say, first of all, to those of you that may be a guest in the house today, we're really thankful that you're here this morning. If you're a first-time guest, welcome. We know we'll have lots of new friends in the house today. And so welcome to all of you that are visiting. Be sure to complete a guest registration card here at the Nine Mile Campus. It's in the pew racks right in front of you, and you can find them over there at the Spanish Trail Campus as well. Be sure to complete one of those and leave it with us before you go home, and we've got some goodies that you can take home with you. If you'll just visit one of our information centers, we will be glad to meet you and glad to know that you're here uh, this morning. My friend Travis Ray is in the house somewhere. Where's Travis? And there he is right there. Travis Ray used to be our college pastor here at the Nine Mile Campus, and they're visiting with us. And so Travis and Jess, we love you. They've got some family with them. Would you all welcome them to church this morning? That's one of the great couples right there of all time. And to those of you that are at Spanish Trail this morning, you need to know we love you as well. And we're thankful that you've gathered at the corner of Summit Boulevard and Spanish Trail to worship the Lord. And to those of you that are with us uh, somewhere around the country, around the world, visiting with us either at our online site or on Facebook Live, you need to know that we're thankful for you and praying God's best upon you and for you today. We continue in our series from the Missionary Journeys of Paul, Acts chapter 26 is where we are this morning. We only have after today a couple of more messages in this series and then we'll be dealing with some Christmas themes which I know that all of you are looking forward to. Acts chapter 26 and we're going to talk for a few minutes today about the importance of your personal testimony. If I were to ask you to tell me your personal testimony, could you do it? Could you articulate your story about what the Lord has done for you? If you've never taken time to write that down somewhere so that your kids and your grandkids can have a written copy of that, I encourage you to do it. You say, well, I don't know how. Well, that's why you came to church this morning because we're getting ready to look at the anatomy of a personal Christian Testimony. I'm just saying, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ personally, then you have a personal testimony. And not only do you have it, the reason that you have it is to be able to share it with someone who needs to know Jesus Christ. When was the last time you shared your story with somebody in your family, somebody with whom you work, somebody with whom you attend classes The Bible says in 1 Peter 3 that we're to always be ready to give a defense, to give an account for the spiritual hope that lies within us. I love the way the New Living Translation says it. If someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it, but do this in a gentle and respectful way which simply means as you do it, don't pound them over the head with your King James Bible. Amen. Well, this is exactly what we see happening when we come to Acts 26. We see a man that's been all over the Roman world, a man who has quite a story to tell about his personal relationship with Jesus Christ, a man who, when anyone asked him about the hope that lies within him, he was always ready to tell them about it, always ready to explain it. Now, it's been quite a journey with the Apostle Paul that we've been on as a church. And if you were here last week, we saw how Paul returned to Jerusalem 
at the conclusion of his third and final missionary journey. And no sooner that he'd gotten there, having been told it wasn't all going to be a cakewalk, having gotten there, he was immediately put on the what? Put on the defensive. And many of the Jews there had concocted false allegations and formed trumped up charges about the gospel that he'd been preaching, none of which was true. It was all cut out of whole cloth, totally made up. They just didn't like him. And what happens to Paul in Jerusalem, frankly, is a carbon copy of what happened to Jesus in his last trip to Jerusalem. And it's a carbon copy of what happened to Stephen in his last trip to Jerusalem. The Jews were angry with those boys because they thought they were blasphemers and accused them of blaspheming against the law of Moses and the temple of the Most High God. Paul faced exactly the same charges as he walks into Jerusalem. He's labeled a blasphemer, and just like his forebears, his life was squarely on the line. Now, what happens to Paul between that in Acts 21 and where we're at today in Acts 26 is actually quite a story. Uh, Paul has been taken, of course, by the Romans into protective custody. There's a plot to ambush Paul and to kill Paul as they move him back and forth from the Fortress Antonia prison just adjacent to the temple complex before the Sanhedrin. They're a group of guys that want to ambush him and kill him on the spot. This is found out by the centurion who's in charge of Paul and under the cover of darkness, he makes plans under this tremendous armed guard to take Paul from Jerusalem up the coast north to Caesarea and present him to the Roman governor who's seated there, whose name was Felix. Felix keeps Paul in Caesarea for two full years. Frankly, he doesn't know what to do with him. He doesn't think it's a civil charge. He knows it's a religious charge, but he knows the Jews can cause him trouble. So he just kind of dabbles with Paul. And the Bible says that Felix is actually hoping that Paul will offer him a bribe so that he'll just take the money and turn him loose. But the bribe never comes. And before Felix can do anything up there in Caesarea with the apostle Paul, he's recalled by the Roman emperor, who at that time was Nero, and he was removed from office, replaced by a new governor named Festus. Most of you know him from Gunsmoke, but this isn't the same one. I'm not making any of this up. There's a Felix and there's a Festus, and every time I think of Felix and Festus, I think of two male Siamese cats for some reason. I don't know. A lot of cats been named Felix and Festus. But these are real men, and Festus comes in and is immediately one who inherits the case of the Apostle Paul, and he sees it the same way. This is not a Roman issue. This is not an issue of public privacy or public decency or public order or disorder. This is a religious issue. And Festus doesn't see anything worthy of the man's death. Sounds like Pontius Pilate 30 years earlier, isn't that right? Nothing worthy of death. But he also knows that Jews can cause him a lot of headaches because Caesar likes the peace in Palestine. And so he doesn't want a repeat of what happened to Pilate 30 years earlier. So he tries to get Paul to let him take him back to Jerusalem and try his case there. Paul says, no, I'm a Roman citizen and I refuse that. Why would Paul not want to go back to Jerusalem? Because he knew what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem and he knew what happened to Stephen in Jerusalem 
And he knew what, happened, what, what would happen to him if he goes back to Jerusalem. So he says, no, I appeal to Caesar and it's my right to do that as a Roman citizen. He really had no choice because to go back to Jerusalem would have meant certain death. And so uh, he stays in Caesarea and that brings us to this very gripping account uh, in Acts 26 of Paul's personal testimony. Now, Festus is going to be there for it, but really this is a defense that Paul is making before another high-ranking official whose name was Herod Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa II. He and his sister Bernice come into Caesarea because Festus is the new governor and they come to bring greetings. And so Agrippa, who comes from a long line of these Herods, y'all remember the Herod that was alive at the time of Jesus? Well, that was this Herod's great-grandfather, Herod the Great, who was so intimidated by this baby Jesus, who everybody was saying was a king, he wanted him to put him to death. And that's why the Mary and Joseph family had to flee to Egypt. Well, this is his great-grandson. His grandfather was the one who was alive at the time of the crucifixion of Christ. His father was the one that put uh, James to death by the sword, Herod Antipa, or Herod Agrippa I, rather. And so he comes from a long line. These are puppet kings. They're given a little part of Palestine to reign over, but he happens to be there in Caesarea. Festus doesn't know what to do with Paul. He talks to Agrippa about it and says, I don't want to look like a fool when he gets to Caesar, and I don't even know what to say. And so Herod says, I'd like to hear him. And that is arranged. And so with great pomp and pageantry, Paul the prisoner is brought in in chains to testify before this visiting king, flowing robes of purple. Festus would have been there in his flowing robes of the scarlet of imperial Rome, the scarlet red. And so there's all this beautiful pageantry. And then here's a guy that walks in. The Bible or Christian history says he's got a bald head. He's stooped over, he's got bowed legs, beady eyes, and he's fully in chains, wearing nothing but a prisoner's tunic. And he speaks truth to power that day, sharing his story in front of some of the most important people on the planet. This is a long passage in Acts 26, and so I might have to move through it really quickly. You already listen quickly with both eyes this morning, amen. What I want to do is give you three critical components of every personal testimony, not just to rehash his, but to make sure you have one and to make sure that you know what it is so that you can share it when you need to give an account of the hope that lies within you. The first thing we need to look at of every personal testimony is an honest assessment of life before faith in Christ. Every one of us who know Christ as Lord and Savior have a spiritual before picture. And we see that here as testified by the Apostle Paul beginning in Acts 26 and verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, 
spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. For this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. What hope? Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I think that'd be a great question to ask on Easter Sunday, and if you come back, I'm going to ask that very question. Why should it be thought so incredible by anybody that God raises the dead? That's why the man was on trial, for that hope, hope in Christ risen from the dead, hope that he too and all who follow Christ would one day be raised from the dead. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now let's stop there for a moment because what's important to notice is the picture that Paul is painting here of his life before he met Jesus Christ. He reminds them that there was a time in his life where even though most people thought he was a champion for God, he soon found out he was the greatest enemy of God on the planet. Everybody in Jewish circle, circle thought this young Paul, the young Paul known then as Saul of Tarsus, everybody thought he was a good man. Everybody thought he was an exemplary man, someone worth modeling, someone worth emulating, somebody worth following. But the truth was, this dude was the meanest bully on the block. And he wasn't good at all. When we first meet him in Scripture, he's giving consent to the death of one of the most righteous men alive in the history of the Christian church, whose name was Stephen, consenting to his death by stoning, and then when that was the verdict of the Jewish high council, it was the young Saul of Tarsus, the man we now know as Paul, who held the garments for those who finally did the dirty work and put the man to death. And then Luke tells us in the eighth chapter of Acts that Saul went from there ravaging the church. Notice extreme language, ravaging the church, devouring believers, <clears throat> entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. One translation said Paul was eager to kill the Lord's followers, which is pretty much what he confesses here. Persecuting believers in Jerusalem first and then following them, going after them in surrounding communities. You know what this is a picture of? This is a picture of a fanatic. I'll tell you what it's a picture of. Are y'all listening? Say amen. It's a picture of a spiritual terrorist. That's what it is. That's who this man was. This man that we exalt, this we exemplify, this man that we now in Christian circles know is one of the greatest, the greatest missionary preacher in the history of the church, save the Lord Jesus Christ, was at one time a terrorist killing others in the name of God. And so 
he was lost, religious, but lost. He was enlightened by the world, but totally blind to God. You know why that was true? Because he was a sinner. He was captive by his own sin. I mean, he's standing there in chains before this royal procession and before these important high-ranking officials. But the truth be told, he'd been set free from all of that. In that room were people who were just like him. Oh, they were wearing the best clothes and they were dressed in the finest silken garments. But the fact of the matter is, they were the ones in chains, not the apostle Paul. He'd been set free from all of that. They were the one in bondage, not Paul. And so the fact of the matter is, this was a man who at one time understood where he'd come from and so must every believer. What a sad thing to find the light of Jesus Christ And as so many people do today, they just go about their merry business and they get over the reality of who they were and what kind of condition they were in before they met the Lord. I don't want to ever get over the desperate condition that it's like to be lost when you don't know Jesus Christ. Part of the reason we don't share our faith with more fervency and with more enthusiasm is because we've gotten over what it was like to be lost and apart from Jesus Christ. And we don't want anybody to have to live in that condition any longer than necessary. Do you remember what your life was like before you trusted Christ to save you? Some of y'all were no doubt saved as teenagers or adults after many years of prodigal living, self-centered living, wild living, maybe even outrageous living. There's probably people in the room that have one of these so-called dramatic salvation stories some of y'all may have been saved from a life of crime some of y'all may have been saved from a life of juvenile delinquency some of y'all may have been saved from a life of drug and alcohol dependency or from sexual promiscuity or from a life of self-centered materialism some of y'all may have even been Florida Gator fans before you met Jesus Christ I don't know but the Lord delivered you from that I don't know. There are all kinds of dramatic testimonies of people coming out of all kinds of personal bondage. But then there are others of us who are saved out of godly homes. How many of you had moms and dads who were followers of Jesus Christ? Well, I'm thankful. I wanted my kids to come to Christ early. You know why? I didn't want them to waste a nanosecond serving Jesus. I didn't want to have to wallow in sin any longer than they had to wallow in sin. So I think there's a part of us want to have our kids come to faith in Christ, and many people were, but regardless of the level of drama, listen, we're all lost. We're all going to hell. We're all sinners. And we have a spiritual backstory if we are followers of Jesus Christ, this spiritual before picture, and it's so important for us to recognize it, and it's so important for all of us to admit that at one time, we were nothing but a spiritual wretch saved only by the grace of God, and we need to be transparent and willing to share that with family and friends and neighbors and co-workers so that they can see we were no different than they were. We were lost, needing to be found, because people need to know that apart from Jesus, they are too. They are lost and without hope apart from Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? 
Every Christian testimony begins with this honest assessment of what life was like before you came to faith in Christ. But if you're a follower of Jesus, that means certainly that you did come to faith in Christ. And that means that your testimony also includes, secondly, a clear encounter with Christ through the gospel. Can you articulate how you were first introduced to Jesus Christ? Do you remember when Christ showed up and convicted you of that sinful condition? Do you have this clear recollection when the gospel finally broke through and brought you to the point of a decision? Maybe it was through the preaching of a sermon on a Sunday morning. Maybe you were listening to a sermon on the internet or on a podcast or on television. Maybe you were reading the Bible. Maybe somebody gave you a Christian book to read. Maybe you were listening to a gospel song. One of my dear friends years ago came to Christ because he got overwhelmingly convicted listening to a bluegrass group on the radio in his car singing Amazing Grace. And for the first time in his life, the Lord opened up his heart and those words finally resonated. And he pulled over on the side of the road in a driving rainstorm and surrendered his life to Christ behind the wheel of his car. Do you remember when you were first introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, having honestly shared his lost life apart from Christ, Paul now turns his testimony in the direction of Christ himself and he shares his personal encounter with Christ. Here's my life before Christ. Now let me share with you my encounter with Christ, which is really important because truthfully, may I say this, your testimony, sometimes we can make our testimony more about us than about Christ and that ought not be so. Your testimony ought to be much more about Jesus than it is about you. Luke first tells us about this great encounter in the ninth chapter of Acts, but here Paul relays it again as part of his testimony to Agrippa. Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you, what? persecuting me, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, most of us are familiar with this story. This is one of the great stories of the Bible, the conversion of Saul of 
Tarsus, later to become known as the Apostle Paul. Paul, of course, in following his uh, description of his past, was leaving Jerusalem to go to the city of Damascus in Syria, north of Jerusalem. And as he was on his way to round up believers and extradite them, bring them back to face trial, and many of them probably would have not survived, he encounters Christ along the way. Christ shows up in this brilliant light, and that light from heaven engulfs him and causes him and everybody around to fall to the ground. Now, what was that light? Well, that light was Jesus, who described himself in the Gospel of John as the what? I am the light of the world. He who follows me, Jesus said, will not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of everlasting life. So this is Paul's first encounter with Jesus Christ, who alone gives light. And because he gives life, because life cannot exist apart from life, the one who gives life, the one who is the light of the world is also the resurrection and the life because there is no life apart from light. And Christ shows up in much the same way that God first appeared to Moses centuries earlier, the form of a brilliant light burning in that bush that was apparently made of asbestos. It was burning, but it was not being consumed. And Jesus in the same way shows up in this great light the glory of the risen Christ who calls to Paul by name. That's a beautiful picture because remember, Paul's not running after Jesus. He's not trying to find Jesus. Jesus is pursuing Paul. Somebody say amen. And I'm so thankful that we have a Lord that still pursues us even though we're wretched, we're lost, we're sinners. He not only pursues Paul, he calls him by name. And he begins by asking him a question as he calls him by name twice. Saul, Saul, why are you what? Why are you persecuting me? Well, Paul was actually persecuting the church, wasn't he? He was persecuting believers, but what he didn't know was that the people that he was was persecuting were living in what we call union with Christ. They were one with Christ. And our union with Christ is so tight that you cannot persecute the church and not persecute Christ at the same time. By definition, anybody, whether it was then in sub-Saharan Africa today, in Indonesia, in any other part of the world, in Soviet Russia, what used to be Soviet Russia, communist countries, whatever the case might be, They may think they're persecuting the church, but make no mistake, you persecute the church, you're persecuting Christ. I'm one with my wife. We are one. We are a spiritual union by marriage. And may I just remind everybody today, you persecute Judy, you're persecuting me. And I might have something to say about that. Amen, fellas? You don't mess with the bride, because to mess with the bride is to jack with the bridegroom. And there's always going to be a price to pay when you persecute the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why it's phrased this way. Why are you persecuting me? But then Jesus follows the question with a statement. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. How many of you here who were saved resisted Jesus' call to salvation for a while? If you resisted the call of Christ to save, postponing it one 
Sunday right after another, one day right after another, one conversation with a friend after another, then what you were doing, same thing Paul was doing, kicking against the goads. A goad was a kind of a cattle prod. It was a long stick with a sharp barb on the end of it, and it was used to, to keep herds moving in the right direction. And as you could imagine, I'm, I wouldn't think you'd want your hindquarters poked with something like that. If, some, if y'all come up here and poke me with one of those, I'm liable to kick back against it. And that's what they would often do, kick against the goads because they didn't like it. Sharp, want to be left alone. Well, that's what Paul was doing. And that means that spirit had probably been working on Paul for a while. Stuff had been going on. We don't know what it was. But if Paul had been kicking against the goads, that means that something had been happening spiritually in his life that he was resisting. All those confessions of Christians that he was hearing, maybe it was the grace in which they were submitting to arrest. Maybe it was the peace that he saw as they were being punished and as many of them were being put to death. He no doubt saw that in Stephen who had the face of an angel. And maybe some of that was just kind of working its way throughout Saul's spiritual system. Maybe it was uh, any number of things, conflict in his heart. We just don't know what was causing that, but for whatever reason, God was doing a work in his heart. And if you know Christ as Savior and Lord, I'm just saying in the same way, you will have a testimony about how God pursued you and how the Spirit eventually convicted you. I'm one of those guys that surely does not have a very dramatic testimony. I grew up with a believing mother and believing grandparents and I was one of those kids who'd never not been in church. I knew the Bible stories. I'd been through the Sunday school classes. I could quote any number of verses right out of the King James Bible, but it wasn't until I was 12 years old. Our kids had been away over at Camp Baldwin at student camp. That's where I was saved. Well, not at Camp Baldwin, but in Middle Tennessee, Camp Overton, we called it. That's where I met the Lord, 12 years old. Been in church, never not been in church. But I'm telling you, we had a camp pastor who was preaching the gospel. I remember it. I can see it. I never forgot the night. To this moment, I've never forgotten anything about that night. And for whatever reason, I came to the conclusion through his preaching about sin that I wasn't as good a boy as I thought I was. I was pretty straight era. Thought I was doing everything right. I just got convicted I wasn't as good a boy as I thought that I was. That I didn't have it all together. That I was, in fact, lost a sinner, and that I had to not only understand that, I had to agree with God. Salvation means not only understanding that, oh yeah, pastor, I'm a sinner. No, you got to agree with God about that because God already knows that about you. You have to confess it. That's what confession is. It's just agreeing with God about God's assessment of you, that you're lost and that you're a sinner, as are all people apart from Christ. And I had to confess that, because I realized, even as a preteen, that unless I was forgiven of that, I'd be lost forever, and I'd go to hell when it was all said and done. Listen, that was the critical, life-changing night for me, and it had nothing to do with me had it not been for a Savior that pursued me, a Savior that had goaded me for the first 12 years of my life, that called me to himself that night, I didn't have any hope, just as no one else has hope. 
Jesus said in Luke 19, why did Jesus even come? We're about to come to Christmas time. Why was Christ even born? The son of man, Jesus came, came to save, to seek and to save that which was lost. That's right, which is a good thing because in our spiritual blindness, dead in trespasses and sins, as Paul will say later to the Ephesians, we can't come to Christ. We cannot come to Christ unless and until Christ first comes to us. You've got to have that darkened heart illumined in some way in order to realize who you are, who Christ is, what's going to happen when you die, and the opportunity for God's grace to overshadow every single sin of your life and bring you once and for all and forever into the eternal family of God. Have you had a clear encounter with Christ through the sharing of of the gospel. And then finally, every Christian testimony has an obvious response of obedient faith. There's an honest assessment of life before Christ. There is a very clear encounter with Christ through the gospel in some way, shape, or form. And then there's an obvious response, an obvious response of obedient faith. Because when Jesus calls, when you respond to the call of Christ with a response of faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, when you surrender your life to his control, when you commit yourself to follow Jesus as a disciple, Christ moves into your life. He transforms your life. He reorders every priority of your life around him and around his presence. And he does so in ways that ought to be obvious from your life. There are no secret agent followers of Jesus Christ. We are in the Lord's army, not in the Lord's CIA. Somebody say amen. Amen. Soldiers are open and obvious, except for a very few of them. Open and obvious. Not perfect, but obvious. Look at verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent, that they should repent, that they should what? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me because he was living for Jesus. He was living openly, and that meant he was living differently than the status quo, and a lot of people, I don't know if you noticed or not, a lot of people don't want the status quo upset. That's why the prophets of the Old Testament were often murdered, because they were calling people back to where they should be, which is not where they were, but they didn't want to leave where they were. Same here. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul's salvation by his own testimony is one that is clearly transformative 
I mean, he was just not, you know, the Bible says in Christ, old things have what? Passed away. When you're saved, all things become what? Old things pass away, all things become new. And that clearly happened in the life of Paul. And it should clearly happen in the life of everyone who has a genuine Christian testimony. God pursued him in his life of darkness. God pursued him in his sin. God shows up in a brilliant light that exposed the deeds done in darkness. And then Paul responded with faith and through faith, God brought him out of the dominion of darkness, moved him into this everlasting kingdom of light. And as he invites Paul to come and be saved, at the same time, that come and be saved is a commission to now go and tell. So salvation is both a calling and at the same time a commission, an invitation to come to Christ and a commission to go to the nations. And that's true not only for him, it's true for you. And it's true for me. And from that point forward, what did Paul do? I'm just telling you, he hitched his wagon to the Lord Jesus Christ, served Christ openly, was obedient in terms of his faith, starting in Jerusalem, moving north to Antioch, then all around the Roman world, and now he's on his way to take his message and his commission of the gospel all the way to Rome. This man had a changed life because of his encounter with Jesus Christ. And let me just say it, there was no doubt about it and that's the way it should be with us have you had an obvious response to your encounter with Christ not with a perfect life but with an obedient life a life of obedient faith one of the great Christian witnesses of the late 20th and 21st century was Chuck Colson Many of you have read Chuck Colson's books. He's dead. He's now with the Lord, very much alive eternally. Colson first made a profession of faith in Christ in the wake of his conviction for obstruction of justice. He was a high-ranking official in the administration of Richard Nixon. He was known as, he was probably the meanest guy in the Nixon administration. He was Saul of Tarsus in the Nixon administration, no question about it. Meanest bully on the block. And not long after he had been sentenced for obstruction of justice, one to four years, a corporate executive gave him a copy of a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. Anybody heard that book? It appeals to thinking people usually. And it appealed to Colson. It gripped his heart. That began a quest, a spiritual journey that soon resulted in the hatchet man's surrender to Jesus Christ. And as you can imagine, in the wake of that, most people heard his testimony and they scoffed at it. He's a politician, congenital liar, people would say. I mean, they believed his claim to have been born again, which is the title of his autobiography. They believed that was not, that's just a ploy. He just wants leniency, he wants sympathy. But time and Chuck Colson's steadfast obedience to the gospel soon proved the critics all wrong. He, of course, founded Prison Fellowship, one of the great ministries of the 20th century, ministry that continues even to this day to provide hope and encouragement to countless thousands of incarcerated men and women. 
and it's done that for decades. Man wrote over 30 Christian books, almost all of them bestsellers. And in an age of increasing skepticism, he became won the Templeton Prize for religion. He became one of the great defenders of the Christian faith, one of the great voices of Christian truth. That is an obvious response to an encounter with Christ of just consistent, obedient faith. You don't have to write 30 books. You don't even have to write one book. You don't have to found an international ministry. You just need to know the truth, know the word, and be committed to live to make much of Jesus Christ. This is the anatomy of a personal testimony. There is an honest evaluation of my life before Christ, a clear encounter that I have with Christ, and then an obvious and obedient response to Christ. The details will vary from person to person, but everyone who claims to follow Jesus should have that kind of story and then be willing to share it with others, always being ready to explain the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. Do you have a Christian testimony are you willing to share what the Lord has done for you? This is God's word, and let all who agree say amen.